Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. From Matthew chapter 23, it's verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we started this fire pit conversation series a few weeks back with no idea how it was going to go and what was going to happen and what the response would be, and we've said it several times the last couple of weeks, but it's been a rather remarkable response as a bunch of people, over a hundred, have taken the opportunity to sign up to be part of a fire pit conversation and get together with eight or nine or ten other people and gather around a fire or a candle and have a conversation about a subject that has mattered. And just to continue to repeat myself, we have heard story after story of connection, story after story of people who, for some reason, This is scratching an itch they have and is giving them a place and a voice and an opportunity to connect with a few other people with whom they are journeying together at church. And it has been a wonderful uh, experiment and a wonderful time of community. And just so you know, this thing has gotten the kind of legs where in a couple weeks the fire pit series will end, but we have every intention of continuing periodically to offer fire pit conversations throughout the year long after this series is over about a variety of subjects as they emerge and as people decide that they want to facilitate them. But there's another reality I want to mention before jumping into this week's subject, and that is the fact that in the midst of all this, I often uh, have been up here in recent weeks and I've heard myself talking about the good things God is doing in our church, and he certainly is, the signs of his presence Uh, and the signs of his grace, and there certainly are many of those. And yet the reality is, is that for some of you, life continues to go on, and for some of you, life is challenging and difficult. And I was reminded uh, not too long ago of how in the midst of all this goodness, it doesn't mean that there aren't people that are dealing with really difficult things. So before we jump in to this today, I just want to invite us as a church family to A, recognize there are folks among us who are hurting, who are feeling heavy-hearted, and I'd like for us to just think of them, if it's not us, 
and take a moment and let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come together as a church family, recognizing that in our midst, around us, there are folks who either in secret or not so secret are grieving, are hurting, are struggling. They've experienced something in life in recent days, and it has taken a big toll on them. And they perhaps are here today wondering where you are. They are a psalmist these days, crying out to you with a measure of angst and anger and fear and frustration, wondering where you are and why their experience has turned this way. And so we pray for them this morning that in the midst of what we are talking about, there may somehow be a word from you to them to bring comfort, to bring encouragement, to bring companionship, and that we pray for ourselves as we see people who are hurting, as we experience them, as we interact with them in the course of being together today, that we will represent Jesus to them, be present with them, and be folks who know how to offer grace and bring comfort. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a guy named Uba Butler, interesting name, is a writer who lives in a garden shed in the Dulwich, if I'm saying that right, area of South London. And one of his jobs used to be writing fake reviews of London restaurants for the TripAdvisor website. And doing this kind of gave him a front row seat into what he called the false reality of TripAdvisor. If I understand it correctly, he was actually hired by TripAdvisor to write these things for various restaurants to boost their rankings and so on and so forth. And as he did it, he just realized there's a false reality here. People look at TripAdvisor, they see all these stars and all these reviews, and they think, wow, this must be quite a place. And it just dawned on him, it's a false reality. So he decided to see how far he could push this false reality, and he created a listing on TripAdvisor for a fake restaurant he called The Shed at Dulwich, playing off of his living quarters. It was advertised as this kind of -of one-of-a-kind restaurant in London. He created a web page, I actually went to it and saw it, complete with a menu of dishes named after various human emotions. So you can get the happy dish, you can get the empathy dish. As I come to understand this, he was sometimes using like fake stuff to make it look like food, take a picture of it and put it on TripAdvisor, but it wasn't even food. The restaurant's number that he put on the website was the, his own cell phone number. The location of the restaurant was on the street where he lived, but he didn't list a specific address. He described the shed as, quote, an appointment-only restaurant. And to his surprise, it got approved by TripAdvisor. So it went out as one that people would look at, and when it all started, his was the 18,149th ranked restaurant in London. He was in dead last place. He had family and friends write these fake reviews and post them on TripAdvisor, giving him four or five stars, making up fake things like this wasn't so great, but that was awesome. Eventually, people started calling to make a reservation at this reservation-only restaurant, and Uba would answer his cell phone and say something like, I'm sorry, but we're fully booked on that day. He kept building up the mystique. He kept building up the mystery. People kept calling. He posted photos 
On TripAdvisor, a few months later, the shed at Dulwich was the 30th ranked restaurant in London. <laughs> People from all over the world started calling to make a reservation. But there was never an opening because there wasn't actually a restaurant. People called and inquired about getting a job and working there. More reviews were posted, more momentum was generated, the hype continued to swell, and eventually the shed became the number one ranked restaurant in all of London, according to TripAdvisor. Even though the restaurant wasn't real. The restaurant didn't even exist. The restaurant was fake. And this rather extreme case, it seems to me, illustrates how elusive realness can be in today's world where appearances are often the priority, where the virtual so often is more important than the real. What people seem to be is more important than what they actually are. Using his phrase, it's a world of false realities. And today, we are continuing our Fire Pit Conversation series by talking about the crucial importance of realness and authenticity in our relationships, in our conversations, and especially in our community as a church. The value of being real, getting worked into the culture of Oak Hills. And I have a simple hope not just from this message, but as we seek to practice realness. And my simple hope is, is that our realness factor would rise. That individually, our realness factor would increase just a little bit. And collectively, as a congregation, our realness factor would rise. We would step out from behind our false realities, our false selves, and grow in realness even just a little. People would experience a refreshing authenticity in the culture of our church. They would feel like what we talk about and how we talk about it is real. And when we think about spiritual formation in Christ's likeness, when you hear the phrase or the idea of transformation or spiritual formation in Christ's likeness, and the process entailed in this, that we would think about the journey toward becoming more authentic. That part of that process of transformation would be about becoming more real and more true to who we actually are. This is an important topic for us as a Christian church. Realness matters to Jesus. And in our scripture reading, he speaks rather assertively about realness and about Phoniness. So let's begin by talking about the hiding place of religion. Jesus in this scripture reading is talking to everyday people and he's talking about the religious leaders and the religious establishment. And he says, beginning in verse three, do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach. Everything they do is done for people to see. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. And he continues his rant in Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 25, which you can see on the screens. He kind of turns his attention directly at the religious people 
and the religious leaders. And he says, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. I guess this is Jesus winning friends and influencing people. Jesus was relentless about realness. And I think so because this ultimately has to do with the heart. Religious people sometimes only care about the false reality of appearances. How they are seen by others. How they come across. Their reputation. In other words, their focus is on the externals. And Jesus reserves his sharpest critiques for the religious people of his day because their hearts were barricaded behind the false reality of their religious activity and their religious duty. So their problem or their sin or their addiction was disguised as religious devotion. And throughout the centuries, religion has been an excellent hiding place and a breeding ground for inauthenticity. Religion and realness are not usually thought of as having much to do with each other. And I want to pause for a moment and make sure we aren't separating or distancing ourselves from this group we're calling the religious or from the Pharisees and thinking in terms of them, but not in terms of us. It is tempting to exempt ourselves from the searchlight of Jesus' words here in Matthew 23 and write these off as, yeah, that's for those religious people, but not me. And this is a monumental mistake because as religious people ourselves, as Christian people, as churched people, it is highly likely we are prone to the way of the Pharisee. We are prone, in other words, to inauthenticity. We are prone to polishing the exterior for the sake of appearances. We are prone to paying too much attention to the externals and not nearly enough attention to the heart issues like our thoughts, motivations, hurts, and attitudes. We are prone to living out of our false selves instead of our true selves. We are prone to barricading our heart behind religion and religious activity, and we need to own the Pharisee in us. See, there simply is no debate on this. The harshest words Jesus spoke were aimed at religious people and at the religious establishment, and most of us fit into the group. It is easy to hide in religion. It is easy to hide in the church. It is easy to settle for the way of the Pharisee looking the part, but not really being the part, comparing ourselves to other people, criticizing and evaluating and judging others, proud of our humility, complaining about all the problems with those around us, but unwilling to let the light of Jesus' words illumine our own guts. We need to own the Pharisee in us.
Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our spouse's heart. I mean, of judges the thoughts and attitudes of the other people in our small group's heart. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing, it says, in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, this is a verse, among other things, about God's desire for us to be real. If the deep places of our inner being, our thoughts, our attitudes, are not being challenged and exposed and poked at, then someone's not teaching the Bible very well. Or someone's not really listening. They're just hiding in church. God knows who we are. All the way through. Inside and out. He knows what lies beneath our polished exterior. And I can fairly well predict what's lighting off in some of our heads right now. And it's something like, oh no. Does he really? I'm in deep weeds. I bet he's disappointed. I bet he's disgusted. And hear me clearly, to the contrary. See, this is where transformation happens. This is the reason why realness is so crucial. To own the true reality of who we actually are and what we actually are so God can bring his healing and God can bring his transformation. He's not interested in what we appear to be. He cares about what we actually are. And his word and his spirit want to penetrate the barricades we've put up to defend our heart. And he wants to go all the way down in and transform the details of things like our thoughts, our motivations, our hurts, and our attitudes. Realness matters. Secondly, I can't touch this subject without a personal reflection, so bear with me. This subject is extremely important to me. And I have some ideas why, but I don't fully know why. I care deeply about this issue of realness in our relationships. I want realness and authenticity to permeate our church culture here at Oak Hills. And I'm not sure that all of my zeal for this is healthy. In fact, I'm quite sure... There are some good and other not-so-good motivations behind this passion. When I was in college, I was involved in InterVarsity as a student leader on my campus. And someone from the group had just experienced some kind of personal heartache or personal tragedy. I don't remember the specifics of what it was. But I was telling another student leader about this, and he responded with what I thought was a misplaced smile and misplaced enthusiasm, and said something like this. Well, the book of James says we should consider it pure joy when we experience trials, and this provides a wonderful opportunity for all involved to do that, doesn't it? I had a moment where I thought about tackling him. I remember thinking right there in the moment, many times since, and about two days ago, I can't do that. 
I won't be like that. I don't want to be like that. I'm not drawn at all to a Christianity like that. In fact, I am repelled by a Christianity like that. Now, so we're clear on this. I believe in the depths of my bones that when we experience trials, God works and he brings forth good things through dark nights. He can be trusted when life falls apart and through all of it, authentic joy is possible through the work of his spirit within us. But the way this guy said it sounded like the answer to a question on a religious test. It reeked of phony It lacked real, and I was put off by the whole experience, and here I am 34 years later still talking about it. It seems to me that the person who has authentically experienced joy in the midst of trials will be amazingly aware of and understanding of the chaotic mess swirling in the heart and mind of another who is going through a trial. The genuineness of their own joy will be reflected in their compassionate presence with others who are hurting. I am just unsettled by displays of Christianity that lack realness. I'm turned off by Christian platitudes and slogans and sayings that sort of skip across the surface of real life and maybe have a catchy sound to them, but they don't really help those who are gasping for their next breath in the midst of a storm of life. A bunch of my life has been lived with a sense of being irreparably flawed in a variety of ways. Not that I make mistakes, that's obvious, but a much deeper and more defining sense of flaw, a sense of permanent damage that can't be repaired. Like a shirt that hangs on the discounted rack at the store because the pattern of the shirt is off in certain places. The lines don't line up and they never will line up. So it has an orange discounted price tag plastered over the original and instead of being 50 bucks, it's 14.99. I've lived much of my life with that sort of self-perception. I've lived much of my life under the pressure of believing there is a way I am supposed to be. A normal lane I'm supposed to travel in. A box I'm supposed to fit into. And this box represents the standard that I am to achieve. But this preferred way or normal lane or box is always just beyond my reach. And I never quite measure up to it or fit into it. And even the idea that there is a box I'm supposed to jam myself into slowly suffocates the life right out of me. So I've lived believing there is a way sons and brothers and husbands and fathers and friends and pastors and Christian leaders are supposed to be. And I come up short in all those roles, so I don't quite qualify to hang on the full price rack. So I have a deep sense in both healthy and unhealthy ways of being broken, of knowing I am flawed, of knowing I am fraudulent. And my mind, if you haven't realized this, can be a chaotic mess at times. 
slogging through these foggy marshes of shame. And I feel all of this rather intensely at times. And if all this is kind of freaking you out, it freaks me out too, so welcome to the club. I understand completely why I gravitate toward movies depicting the struggle of a good heart barricaded behind layer upon layer of pain and fear and pretending and anger and this good heart is trying to come forth and emerge. Movies like this pull at some longing in me to be enough, to be okay, to be good. And I'm absolutely unraveled by the sight or by the experience of authentic goodness and authentic love. So nothing pierces me more than knowing the God of the universe actually loves me and seeks me and forgives me and has healed brokenness in me I never imagined could be healed. And this is one of the reasons why the communion table is so important to me. Because at the communion table, I re-enter the incredible story of grace and live it all over again. When I see you pouring out goodness on someone else who needs it, loving someone in the simplest of ways, helping someone to a chair who can't get there on their own, Sitting with another person while they wipe tears from their eyes. I'm cut to the core. Because it's goodness in high definition. It's realness in the church. And I just revel in seeing. When I think of people like us who struggle to overcome some sinful habit that's been plaguing us for years... Or people like us who have doubts even about God's existence? Or doubts about the violence of God we find in the Old Testament? Or people like us who wonder about those in other corners of the world who are sincerely seeking after God, but they're not doing it the way we are? And we wonder, usually to ourselves, because we're afraid if we say so, people will think we're nuts, but we wonder if God has a place for them somehow in his kingdom. When I think of people like us who sometimes cannot connect the dots in our lives, we can't find God in the midst of the current struggle. I want to make room for the struggle. I want to make room for the honesty and for the authenticity and for the realness of the journey. And I want Oak Hills to be a place, a church, where real people who are dealing with real issues can find a culture where they can find God and experience, actually, His transforming goodness. I've always loved the Apostle Peter. Ancestry.com says he was a distant relative of mine. (laughs) One minute, he's boldly declaring he'll never deny Jesus. The next minute, he wilts in front of a little girl who accuses him of being Jesus' friend. And then the next minute, Peter is drowning in guilt, slogging through a foggy marsh of shame, thinking he'll never see the sun again. And then the next minute, Jesus is walking with Peter, and he's got his arm around him, and he's restoring him, and on it goes. 
So realness is an important value. Let's talk about a rough sketch of realness. What the world wants and never imagines finding in a church are real people who are hungry for a real encounter with a real God. But who are honest about the doubts, questions, challenges, and struggles experienced along the way. Nobody expects to find such a phenomena in a Christian church. So what does realness actually look like? Psalm 13 is an example of raw realness before God. David writes these words. Undoubtedly, as he's parading around the wilderness somewhere, sleeping in a cold, dark cave, wondering where God is. How long, Lord? He starts. Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? We have our ways of cleaning up the messes we find in the Bible so everything fits in the right box. But this psalm is a protest against God for his absence in the practical challenges of David's life. David is upset with God. He doesn't understand. He doesn't like it. He doesn't get it. He feels forgotten, alone, depressed, and defeated. And he cannot fathom why God would stand back and do nothing. And here's the most important part. He feels the freedom to dump this out before God. Now that's realness. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. It's on the screen, and I want to read this whole thing. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, And the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified. Before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this is a beautiful sketch of realness. The Pharisees over here, a religious superstar. The tax collectors over here, a despicable sinner. The Pharisee compares himself to others and comes out, surprisingly, superior to them, and takes pride in the rules he follows. The Pharisee gives God his resume of righteousness, but the tax collector over here stares at the ground, shifts his feet back and forth, beats his chest, and pleads for mercy. The tax collector is real. The Pharisee is a fraud. The tax collector is self-aware. The Pharisee is self-unaware. The tax collector lives from their true self. The Pharisee is trapped in their false self. The real person beats their chest and prays, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, because they know their own heart. They know who they are. They know what they are and what they aren't. They know what they are capable of. 
They know their dark side. Sinner is not some catch-all generic term. They know their most favorite sins by their specific names. So the real person is recognizably humble because they know they have much to be humble about. The inauthentic person wants to be thought of a certain way. They want others to be impressed. They want others to think they are spiritual more than they actually want to be spiritual. So realness is honesty in a conversation. It's really not that complicated. We actually talk about the things that are actually going on in our hearts, in our thoughts. We move past surface-level externals and we talk about doubts we may have. We talk about sins we commit. We talk about insecurities. We talk about fears. We talk about hurts. We tell the truth about who we are and about who we aren't. And when the Spirit of God is moving and where the Spirit of God is moving, religious charades are on the decline and people are coming out from hiding. They're talking about real stuff. They're talking about their own racist tendencies. They're talking about their marriage that's falling apart. They're talking about the loneliness they feel. They're talking about an insecurity and they're naming it that they have. They're talking about their sexual identity. They're talking about their sexual brokenness. They're talking about their sexual fear. They're talking about body image and how it affects them. They're talking about their alcohol intake. And on and on we could go. So where the Spirit of God is moving, we will see, experience, and hear surprising stories of genuine transformation. Because where people are taking the risk of realness, the kingdom of God is made visible. So fourth and last, let's talk beyond the theory of realness. Most people appreciate the idea of realness because it is a refreshing change from what we so often experience in life. And for many, it's a refreshing change from what they've ever experienced in church. We like the idea of faith and church and religion merging together with realness, honesty, and authenticity. And these days, whether it is in Hollywood or the federal government or Michigan State University or the Olympic gymnastics program or some religious institution, we are constantly reading about people who were hiding in the darkness and who were engaged in horrific behavior, usually toward other people, and they abused their power to keep it hidden, and now these things are starting to come out. And we are seeing what the Bible declares in a thousand different ways, simply this, the human heart is broken. And a broken human heart is capable of much darkness and of tragic sin and of unspeakable violence toward other people. And please, I beg you, do not distance yourself from those who have a broken heart. This is crucially important. We all have a broken heart. And the more real we are, the more we will identify with the ugly stuff a broken heart can create. The more real we are, the easier we will admit we know the moldy fruit our own broken heart Produces, And here's the point. Realness is not a theory. When we're real with each other, things will be confessed and talked about 
that aren't pretty. When someone stands up at an AA meeting and acknowledges they are an alcoholic and tells their story, their story is often raw, rough, ugly, heartbreaking, a tale of destruction and denial and pain. And most of those in the room and around the table can relate and they are not shocked. They're not put off by the gory story they just heard. And I have to tell you, it has always bothered me why such groups had to go outside the church to get what they were looking for. Because what they were looking for was a place where they could be real and they felt they had to go outside the church to find it. And that troubles me. And it seems to me we need them back inside the church so we can learn what they know. And that is realness without shock. See, when we talk about realness, it's not a theory. It's real people sharing real struggles and real issues, and it won't be pretty. And the question is, will we as Christians and as a Christian church respond to another's realness with our presence and grace and love, or will we be shocked? And disappointed and filled with judgment. And even as we say to ourselves or to others, oh, I'm not judging you. Everything in the face, the tone, the voice, and the presence says, oh, yes, you are. Because I just crossed the line you have. You're good with me being real as long as the realness is sanitized. See, when a culture of realness is created, real unsanitized stuff will be shared. And the true test of our commitment to authenticity and belief in authenticity and love of authenticity will be revealed through our response to the gory story another person tells. So do we run? Do we judge? Do we shun? Do we avoid? Do we gossip? Or do we stay with the person and love them? And support them. And of course, speak truth to them. And help them move out of the gore into something more liberating and godlike. Do we offer grace to them? Do we help them find help? We know our own heart. So when we hear about someone else's moldy fruit, it does not shock us. We've seen our own many times. So we get it. When someone confesses to us they drink too much at night or they wonder if certain parts of the Bible are actually true or they admit their marriage is a mangled mess or they share a doubt they have about God or they share they are angrier than a junkyard dog or they're having an affair or they admit to some other struggle what will we do in response will we stay in the room will we stay at the table will we stay at the fire pit will we stay present realness is not a theory it's a way of being in relationship it's a way of doing church let's pray together Our Lord Jesus, we are grateful to you because the truth of what you said that got recorded in this book and the truth of who you were that got recorded in this book pierces down beyond all the barricades 
and the nonsense and the games and the lies. And it goes right down into who we actually are. And it invites us to become someone different. And only you and the power of your spirit can make it so. So we continue to surrender all and open ourselves to the work of your spirit, to the gentleness of your deep search, and pray that you will give us the courage to come out from hiding that we might be transformed. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.